by the way. We live in a culture in which Satan attacks the home. That's the primary focus of his attack, isn't it? The home, the family, the family and the home is the building block of society. If he can destroy that, he can wreak havoc on a society, and that's the epitome of our culture. Our culture epitomizes that problem. The marriage is so important because the home and the family becomes an illustration of the gospel. Your, your marriage is more than just about you and your spouse. It's about Christ and the church. It's about the gospel. The unbelieving world can not only hear the gospel from us, but when they look at our homes and our lives and our families, they should see the gospel displayed. The Christ-like sacrificial love of the husband, the faithful, joyful submission of the wife, and a joyful, peaceful home that puts the glory of God and the glory of the gospel on display. And all of that is, the key to all of that is verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You can never love your wife as Christ loved the church. You can never submit to your husband with joy and faithfulness until you're under the influence and control of the Spirit and Word of God. That's where it begins. So on that note, we're going to turn our attention to the means by which we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and that is the Holy Scripture. So let's pray, and then I've got a long sermon for you, so get ready. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the feast that has been laid out for not only our bodies this afternoon, but the feast that's been laid out for our souls in the Word of God. We're so grateful for the truth of Scripture. We're never commanded to do anything that You Yourself have not modeled for us in the life and ministry of our Lord. We're commanded to love our neighbor. No one loved his neighbor more faithfully than the Lord Jesus Christ. We're commanded to devote ourselves to prayer, and no one was a more faithful prayer warrior than Jesus Himself. We're commanded to love our bride as husbands, and no one loves his bride more faithfully than the one who gave himself for her. We're commanded to submit as wives, are commanded to submit to husbands, we're commanded to submit to authority in general, and yet Christ Himself was the one who grew up and submitted to His parents. One who obeyed the governing authorities apart from when those authorities called him to disobey the Word of God. Christ becomes the perfect model for us all. One to emulate in every area of life. And we're so grateful for that. And we're thankful that, Lord, these commands that You've given us, You give us the power to obey them. You give us the Holy Spirit living within us. You've given us new affections. You've planted principles of life and grace and holiness within us that compel us to obey Your Word. And we're so thankful for that. So help us, Lord, to not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Help us to walk in the Spirit. I pray each of us here at Christ as King would be a people who live their lives in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of our Savior. Help us to do that, we pray. And now as we open up the Word of God to study the Scripture, we pray for help from on high. We pray for illumination We are Your servants, Lord. Teach us Your Word. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in Your law. And help us, by grace, to walk in a path of obedience. For Your name's sake we pray. Amen. Alright, well we come to that uh, portion of our service when we open the Word of God together and dive deep into the well of truth that is the Scripture. So if you have your Bible, you can return with me to the book of Titus. Titus 1, Titus chapter 1, short three-chapter letter, somewhere in the middle of your New Testament, Titus chapter 1. 
several weeks ago now, we began an exposition of this epistle. It feels like forever ago now with uh, the cancellation of a few services due to COVID and our recent trip to Tennessee. But believe it or not, we have begun an exposition of this little pastoral letter. And uh, Lord willing, in the next several weeks, we'll begin to pick up some momentum and really begin to work our way through this book. We are still in the opening four verses, Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. These verses frame the salutation or the opening greeting. And they constitute, by the way, only one long sentence in the Greek. One long sentence. We're going to spend several weeks studying just one sentence of the Apostle Paul. This is one long, drawn-out, theologically profound, pregnant sentence filled with rich theological and practical truth. Paul apparently didn't get the lesson on run-on sentences because he gives us a glorious one right here, right now. So one long, long sentence, and there are many practical lessons for us to learn from this passage. Let me read it to you again. Titus 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even His Word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. As I said, this passage serves as the opening greeting, the preface, the introduction, the salutation to the epistle. And it's very rich, very compact. No one could have gotten more out of a little than the Apostle Paul. No one could have packed more truth into four verses and one sentence than this great Apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In terms of structure, this is a pretty ordinary opening greeting for the first century. I told you last time it's comprised of three parts. There's the author, along with some details about the author. Then there's the name of the recipient. And then there's a closing benediction, a closing prayer, a blessing from Paul on Titus. So in that sense, it's very basic. It's very ordinary, very very normal. However, the truths that the passage contains make it extraordinary. This is a glorious, glorious greeting. I don't think you and I have ever penned a greeting in a letter that has this much majesty to it. It is extraordinary. Paul doesn't waste a word. Every word of his weighs a pound. He gives us rich truth and what seemingly seems to be a mundane beginning. In fact, these are the passages in the Scripture that you're probably tempted to skip over. What is there for me to learn from an opening salutation in a letter? I want to get to the meat of it. I want to get to the heart of it. But in one sense, Paul provides for us the heart of the letter in seed and incipient form right here in the very beginning. Much of this greeting consists of Paul's description of himself and his ministry. He seeks to establish his authority and to outline for both Titus and the churches of Crete his priorities and commitments in the ministry. So in that sense, this 
becomes an example for us. This passage outlines for all believers, for all time, the right priorities and commitments in ministry. It teaches us how to be a faithful Christian. How to be an effective minister. This passage is so important to you because you're about to learn what it takes to be an effective minister for the glory of Christ. I told you last time that there is a damaging idea that has taken hold in many evangelical churches today. And it's the idea that the pastor is called to do all of the ministry. All of the ministerial work is the job of the pastor. He's the hired professional. That's why we pay him for it, right? It's, he's the hired hand. That's his job. However, just a cursory read through the New Testament will dispel that erroneous notion, that idea of professionalism. In reality, the New Testament teaches, listen to this, the New Testament teaches that every Christian is called to ministry. Every Christian is a minister. Every child of God is called to to service. None of us are to be sitting on the sideline. We're all in the game. This, by the way, is a logical conclusion to the biblical and Reformation doctrine known as the priesthood of all believers. Every member ministry. We're all priests before God. Ministers before Him. Servants in the Lord's army. We are onward Christian soldiers marching. Every believer fits that description. Last time I mentioned Paul's words to you from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where Paul said that Christ has given pastors to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, it's not the pastor's job to do all the ministry. His job is to equip the whole church, all the saints, to do the work of service. All Christians are called... To ministry. All believers are called to service. That is the clear teaching of the New Testament. And we all want to be faithful in that service, don't we? We all long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. None of us want to waste our lives, do we? We want our lives to count. We want to live for eternity. We want to take our little life, which is but a vapor, and have it count for eternity. We want to be faithful and effective ministers of God. And in order to be faithful, in order to be effective, we must have the right priorities. The right commitments. But what are they? What are the right priorities of an effective minister? Well, as Paul describes his own ministry to us, he outlines for us his own priorities that become, in a more general sense, the priorities of any effective minister of all time. There are six of them here. Six priorities of an effective minister. We looked at the first two last time. We're only going to look at the third one this time. So we're going to spend three weeks studying this one long sentence of Paul. So for this morning, we'll look at number three. But before we do that, by way of review, the first priority of an effective minister that we saw last time is the right master. The right master. An effective minister is committed to the right master. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God. Paul begins the letter by asserting his humble position as a slave. That's what the word doulos, translated here as bondservant, means. It's a slave. 
It's defined as one who has no ownership rights of his own. One who is totally under the authority of another. It is a slave. You ever viewed yourself that way? That word has become repulsive in our culture, and to some degree rightly so, because of what happened in earlier American history. But when the word is used in this context, it's a wonderful word. Paul could have started the letter in many ways. He could have talked about his his heritage. He could have talked about his... His, train, his rabbinical training. He could have talked about the fact that he was a Roman and a Greek citizen, or a Roman citizen, knew Hebrew and Greek. He had many accolades he could have mentioned, but he begins mentioning that he is a slave. He viewed himself as a slave, one under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He had relinquished all of his own hopes, all of his own dreams, his own glory, his own agenda. And he was totally sold out for the will and the glory of Jesus Christ. He was a slave. And in the same way, all believers have been bought with a price. None of us are our own anymore. We've all been freed from sin and enslaved to God, as Romans 6 says. And therefore, we must daily lay ourselves on the altar, as it were, and offer our bodies as holy and living sacrifices acceptable to God. To be a Christian is to no longer live for yourself, but to live for Him who died and rose on your behalf. It is to be one yielded to the mastery of God. No one can be an effective minister who is not totally consecrated to God. That's the starting point. That's where it begins. So priority number one, the right master. But there was a second one we looked at last week, or last time. And that is the right ministry. The right ministry. Verse 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. We've seen his humble position. Here's his authoritative office. Paul was an apostle. An apostolos, a sent one. An authoritative messenger of Jesus Christ. One sent by Christ to represent Him and speak with His authority on His behalf. I told you last time, this is very important, there are no more apostles today. There are no more apostles. They're the ones that laid the foundation of the church, according to Ephesians 2.20, by writing Holy Scripture. The foundation's laid. We don't need the foundation layers anymore. Their job is done. They also perform miracles to authenticate their authority. Someone tells you he's an apostle today, all you've got to do is ask him to prove it by doing a miracle. If he can't heal the sick and raise the dead and give sight to the blind, he's not an apostle. He's an imposter. These men were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord. They were chosen directly by the risen Christ. This class of men included the original twelve, Judas replaced by Matthias. Paul added later as one untimely born. And with the death of the Apostle John at the end of the first century, the office of Apostle has ceased. It is no more. Paul was an Apostle in this sense. An Apostle of Jesus Christ. And as such, he spoke with divine authority. He wrote the very words of God. And not only were the believers at Crete to receive this letter in that way, so must we. We must receive this for what it is, 
the Word of God to us. As I told you before, why are we going to labor for three weeks in one sentence of Paul's? Because he writes under the inspiration and superintendence of the Holy Spirit recording God's words to us. This was Paul's ministry. He was committed to it. He was devoted to it. And in the same way, any effective minister must be committed to the right ministry. The ministry that the Lord has called them to. The ministry that God has for us. In a more general and broad sense, we're all called to be witnesses and messengers of Christ. We're all called to discover our spiritual gifts and employ those gifts, fulfilling our ministries for the glory of Jesus. So we must be committed to the right ministry. But that's all by way of review. Now all of that brings us to the third priority of an effective minister. This will be the focus of our attention this morning. Number three, the right mission. The right mission. An effective minister is committed to the right mission. Or you could say the right ministerial purpose. The right goals. We see that in the rest of verse 1. Look there with me. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Stop there. Paul is telling us the goals of his apostleship. His purpose in the ministry. He's telling us what his mission is. He was an apostle... And his ministry was for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. The word for here, by the way, translates the Greek word kata. It could be translated according to as it is in the King James Version. But it could also carry the idea of direction, motion, moving towards something, even moving towards a goal. And that's the sense of the word here. Paul is saying the purpose... The goal of my ministry is the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So first, the faith of those chosen of God. What does that mean? What does that mean, Paul? Paul's a a guy who writes in very profound language, doesn't he? Sometimes you could almost wish, Paul, could you just tell us a little more plainly what you mean? So what does Paul mean here? What does he mean that the purpose of his ministry is the faith of those chosen of God? Well, there are two reasonable, somewhat related possibilities. And those possibilities depend upon the usage of the word faith here. What does Paul mean by faith? Paul could be using the word faith in two ways. Objectively or subjectively. Objectively, faith refers to the body of doctrinal truth revealed to us in the Bible. Biblical doctrine, biblical Truth. It's the object of our faith. It's the truth that we are called to believe. Christian truth. Jude uses the word faith that way. In the book of Jude, which is only one chapter long, verse 3, Jude said that he wrote his letter appealing to his readers to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now what faith is that? What faith is it that we're called to contend for? What is the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints? It's the body of doctrinal truth revealed in the Bible. Biblical truth. Gospel truth. 
It's the apostles' teaching, the foundation that they laid for the church. Now, if that's what Paul means here by faith, here's what he's saying. The purpose of my ministry is to preach the faith, that is the doctrinal truths that God's elect are called to believe. To preach the faith, the doctrinal truths, by which God's elect are saved and sanctified. So perhaps that's what Paul means here. But there is another way to use the word faith, and that is subjectively. And subjectively, faith refers to our own personal faith. Our own trust in Christ. Our own faith in the Gospel. And if Paul's using the word in that way, then here's what he's saying. My purpose in the ministry is to bring God's elect to personal saving faith. That's my goal. To bring those chosen of God to salvation. And in the context, I think that's what Paul is saying here. He wants to bring the elect of God to saving faith in Christ. The twofold purpose of Paul's ministry as seen here then is evangelization and edification. Evangelization and edification. Or you could say it this way, salvation and sanctification. Those were the goals of Paul's ministry. He had a ministry to unbelievers and to believers. And his ministry to unbelievers was evangelism, gospel proclamation. So Paul's desire was to bring God's elect to salvation. He expresses that desire again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. There he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. That's an amazing purpose statement, isn't it? Everything Paul endured in the ministry, everything he suffered, all of the blood, sweat, and tears... It all had a purpose. And the purpose was to bring God's elect to salvation and eternal glory. Now, obviously that implies that not all of God's elect are saved. Get that? There are people in the world today who are elected by God to salvation, but have not yet believed. They will believe. God will save all of His people. Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, and of all whom the Father has given to me, I lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. God will lose none of those whom He's chosen. He will save them. However, there are people in the world today that are elect, that have yet to come to saving faith. And how is He going to bring them to saving faith? He's going to do it through the Gospel. He's going to do it through ordinary believers like you and me, declaring the good news. And that is the means by which He will bring His sheep into the kingdom. You see, faith, this is very important to understand, faith is not something that we generate on our own. It's not something we muster up by our supposed free will. Faith is a gift of sovereign grace. God grants faith and repentance to whomever He desires. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, perhaps a familiar verse to you, tells us this, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Did you hear that? Your salvation, even your faith, is not of yourself, it is the gift of God. 
Every believer has faith because he receives it as a gift. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter addresses the letter to those who have received a faith as the same kind as ours. That is, saving faith. Faith is not something we muster up by our free will. It is a gift received by God's grace. All of God's elect receive the same saving faith. Philippians 1.29 tells us that it has been granted to us to believe. I told you before, you don't believe because you're smarter than the next guy. You were once foolish and disobedient yourself, enslaved to various lusts, hopeless and without hope and without God in the world. You believe, if you believe today, because God opened your eyes and your heart and drew you by sovereign, irresistible, effectual grace. That's why you believe. God grants faith to whomever He pleases. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that God elicits saving faith in the hearts of the elect through the preaching of the Gospel. So he labored in his ministry to that end, resting in God's sovereignty. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, Luke records the response of the crowd as Paul is preaching the Gospel. And there he says, "...as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed." That's glorious, isn't it? God appointed them to eternal life and they believed. That's a relief to me. I don't know about you. It's a relief to me that salvation does not depend upon me. Are you kidding me? Someone's salvation depends on my eloquence, my persuasiveness, my ability to coerce His free will and make a decision for Jesus. That would be a paralyzing reality. I wouldn't want anything to do with evangelism if I had the burden of that on my shoulders. That's not how it works. Here's how it works. We preach the gospel, God saves the elect. That's how it works. You do your job, God will do His job. Right? What does the sower do? He sows the seed. And then he goes to bed. He sleeps well at night. You should be able to do that. Preach the gospel and go to bed. The sower sows the seed. He goes to sleep. He wakes up and it just grows. He doesn't even know how it does it. It seems as if it does it on its own. That's how it is. We preach and God saves those whom He's appointed. He saves His elect. That's what the word chosen here means, by the way. It's the Greek word eklektos. means elect. Maybe that word scares you a little bit. It's a word we don't like in our evangelical jellyfish culture. But it's a biblical word and we have to deal with it. Believers are often referred to as God's elect. Romans chapter 8, verse 33, Paul asks, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Jesus says in Luke 18.7, Will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? God clearly has an elect. Now when it comes to explaining this reality of election, there are two primary views. Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism teaches the doctrine of unconditional election. Arminianism teaches the doctrine of conditional election. So which one is it? Which is it? Some people try to make a hybrid and call themselves Calvinians. It doesn't work that way. That's called an inconsistent Arminian. So what does the Scripture teach? Well, by considering a few features on election, 
we can kind of come to a crystallization of what the Bible teaches about this doctrine. And I've addressed this with you before, but let me quickly rehash some of this now. I want to consider with you the agent of election, the objects of election, the timing of election, the purpose of election, the basis of election, and the chief end of election. Okay, six quick features. First of all, the agent of election. Who does the choosing? Who does the choosing? The obvious answer is God. We are His elect. He is not our elect. We are His elect. We didn't choose Him, He chose us, right? John 15, 16, Jesus said, You didn't choose Me, but I will. I chose you. Right? That's how it works. The basis, or the agent of election, is God. Ephesians 1, 4 says, He chose us. <coughs> 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, God has chosen you. God is the one that does the electing. Secondly, the objects of election. The objects. Who is it that God chooses? Some say, well, God chooses everybody. God chooses everybody. Is that true? No. What does Matthew twenty two fourteen say? Many are called, but few are what? Chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called through the Gospel to come to Christ externally. But only few are chosen by God, and only those chosen by God will come. The, Asian, the, the objects of election then are few. And you can know that you're elect, by the way, because you come to Christ savingly. The evidence of your election is your faith in Christ. Because no one can truly believe who hasn't been first chosen by God. How about the timing of election? The timing. When did God choose us? The answer, eternity past. Ephesians 1.4 says, you're familiar with this, He chose us in Him before the what? Foundation of the world. I don't know if you know this, but you couldn't do anything before then, could you? You couldn't make a decision. You couldn't do a good work. God chose you before you were ever born. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, God chose you from the beginning. From everlasting. This is God's eternal purpose that He carries about in Christ Jesus. Your salvation is God's eternal purpose if you're a believer. Then there's the purpose of election. What is it that God chooses us for? Some try to explain this away and say what God is choosing us for is to make up nations or maybe He's choosing us to have some sort of noble ministry purpose. What does He choose us for? Ephesians 1.4 answers again. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That's what He chose you for. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 puts it even more plainly. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. That's what Paul says. God has chosen you for salvation. God chooses whom He will save. If we're the bride of Christ, don't you? I pick my own bride. Christ picks His bride. He's the sovereign selector. Then there's the basis of election. And this is the most important one. This is the heart of the matter. Arminians assert that God chooses a people by looking into the future and finding out who will by their own free will choose Him. And then on that basis, He chooses them. In that system of theology, God's choice and election is dependent upon man's will to choose God. But if Romans chapter 9 totally ruins that flow of thought, 
Romans 9.16 says this, starting in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, God says, I'll save whomever I want. I'll save whomever I please. Verse 16 then. So then it does not depend on the man who wills. What doesn't depend? God's choice of mercy. God's choice of mercy does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's a powerful statement. God's choice of salvation does not depend upon man's will or effort, but God's will and grace. We have, as Ephesians 1.5 puts it, been predestined according to the kind intention of His will. Or as Ephesians 1.11 puts it, we have been predestined by Him who works all things after the counsel of His will. You don't see your will in there, do you? It's God's will. Your will comes to Christ only because God shows you and moves your will. He liberates your will. God chose us. And He did it unconditionally. Our election is not based on our will, but God's will. Not your decision, but His selection. Not your works, but His grace. It's not dependent upon your freedom, but His sovereignty. That's the way election works. And finally, one more, the chief end of election. What's the ultimate goal of this? What's the ultimate goal? Ephesians 1 verse 6 answers, He did all of this to the praise of His glorious grace. Why does God choose some and not others? That's not even really the right question. You might hear it that way. The real question is, why did God choose to save anyone? We're all wretched sinners who have violated the law of the holy God. Dust balls who have offended Him and who deserve the fullness of His wrath. Why does He choose to save anyone? The answer, for the praise of the glory of His grace. So that one day, the redeemed will sing the praises of His grace forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So that we would be gathered here even this morning singing the praises of His grace. God chooses to save some, the elect, to manifest His grace while choosing to leave the rest of humanity in their sin and to damn them for that sin for the praise of His glorious justice. That's what God does. God will be glorified in your life, by the way. Whether you love Him or hate Him, whether you believe in Him or reject Him, God will either be glorified in your salvation or your damnation. But God does all things for His own glory. So that's the biblical doctrine of election. Paul knew that God chose whom He would save, but he also knew that God chose how He would save them. God ordains the ends and the means. The ends, the saving of the elect. The means, the preaching of the Gospel. Spurgeon said, if God would have stamped an E on the back of all of the elect, I'd raise up their shirts and limit my ministry to them. But as it is, I don't know who they are, and so I do what the Scripture commands of me, and I preach the Gospel to every creature. That's what Paul did. He knew what Romans 1.16, the very words he wrote were true. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.21, God is well pleased to save sinners through the foolishness of the message preached. God saves His elect and He does it through 
the gospel. And so Paul was committed to that. And in the same way, you and I must be committed to this. To the proclamation of gospel truth. To evangelism. To declaring the good news to our friends and our neighbors and our family members and those whom God brings into our realm of influence. We must tell non-believers about the person and work of Christ. How can you do that, practically speaking? I'll give you a few quick tips. Number one is gospel tracts. Gospel tracts, you should know what they are. If you come to church here, there's plenty of them laying around. Gospel tracts. Leave them at gas pumps. Leave them at the doctor's office. Have them on you at all times. Leave them with you everywhere you go. I've got to start obeying my own advice. I was at the hospital visiting Gary's father the other day, and after I got out, my wife hadn't finished at Walmart, and so I could have sat there and handed out tracks the whole time. Instead, I was sitting there doing nothing. So say you have tracks on you at all times. Don't waste a golden opportunity. And they lead to conversation, so beware. If you give out a track, you might have to tell someone about the gospel. A second tip is pray for opportunities. Ask God for open doors. Thirdly, Christmas cards. Getting close to Christmas. If you send out Christmas cards, put a track in them and send them to every unbeliever you know. Or maybe a gospel handwritten letter. It's a very non-confrontational way to spread the gospel to people you love and know. Another way is to do evangelistic Bible studies. Meet with an unbeliever. Take them through gospel truth. I've done this and have seen a lot of fruit in doing that. You can also participate in our church-wide outreaches. We do outreach on Wednesday and we do them, we're going to get ready to do one for Halloween and there's many other ways that you can participate in proclaiming the gospel. But regardless of the method you choose, the most important thing is to be faithful and to communicate the gospel to those around you. Is that you? Are you committed to sharing your faith? Are you committed to proclaiming the good news of salvation? Are you on mission with Jesus, who according to Luke 19.10, came to seek and to save that which was lost? May we emulate our Lord and the Apostle Paul and labor for the faith of those chosen of God. But that now brings us to a second purpose of Paul's ministry. A second element of his mission. And that is sanctification or edification. The first purpose is evangelization. The second purpose, edification. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. With the word and, Paul now indicates purpose number 2. His ministry was according to and for the purpose of the faith of those chosen of God and secondly, for the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. In other words, the second purpose of Paul's ministry was to bring believers to a greater knowledge of the truth which would produce godliness. He labored for the maturity and the sanctification of God's people. He labored for their holiness. I told you the means by which God brings the elect to salvation is the gospel, the knowledge of the truth. And yet that's the same means by which He brings them to sanctification. To godliness. The Word of God. Paul's ministry was centered on the truth. Divine truth. He knew that faithfulness to the truth would be blessed by God with fruitfulness. If you want a fruitful ministry, an effective ministry, it needs to be built upon God's Word. Paul was not in the entertainment business, was he? 
He didn't cater to the crowds. He didn't conform to the culture. He knew that bounce houses and juggling clowns and nice fog machines and the lights dimmed just rightly, none of that sanctifies. None of that makes you holy. God sanctifies when we see the glory of His Son in the mirror of the Bible. Paul was committed to the truth. And if we're going to see our own hearts sanctified, if we're going to see others sanctified around us, we must be committed to the Word of God. It's the truth. Now what is the truth that sanctifies? What is the truth specifically? Turn with me for a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Just a few books to the left. We're going to consider what is the truth by which God saves and sanctifies His people. And we'll look at this in more detail next week, but we'll at least scratch the service, service this morning. 1 Timothy 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Paul writes, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, that is, praying for all men, as he said in verses 1 and 2. We're to pray for all men because it's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Men are saved by coming to the knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? The answer is in verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. The truth that you must believe to be saved is the gospel. The truth that there is one God and there is one way to get to this God. And it's not Mary, it's not Muhammad, it's not Buddha, it's not your good works. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Solus Christus. The man, Christ Jesus. He's the one who gave Himself sacrificially, substitutionarily in our place. He's the one that paid the price for our sin, took our punishment, absorbed God's wrath, and rose again as our intercessor and one who procures for us forgiveness and salvation. This is the message that God saves and sanctifies His people through. It is the knowledge of the truth. Salvation takes place when God grants the elect repentance and faith through the gospel. However, the truth not only saves, it also sanctifies. We, we like to leave off there. A lot of times we think about just making people make decisions. We want to make converts. But our mission doesn't end there. Our mission carries over to making disciples. Our mission moves on from justification to sanctification. Go back to Titus 1 now. Titus 1. The knowledge of the truth, the very knowledge of the truth that saves, Paul says, is according to godliness. It is the very thing by which God produces godliness in the hearts of His people. The word godliness carries the idea of reverence. It's the attitude of the heart. It's the, the right attitude that produces the right conduct. Reverence is what produces obedience. This knowledge of the truth is what produces that. It starts with a heart that loves God, a heart that fears God, a heart that worships God. That's what's going to produce a life that obeys God. And the very thing that produces that is a knowledge of the Word of God. 
Scripture's clear on this, by the way. There is no shortcut for sanctification. There's no substitute. If you want to grow in holiness and godliness and righteousness, you must saturate your mind in the Bible. You must come to a greater and greater understanding of biblical truth. Sanctification is directly related to the mind. Spiritual laziness hinders growth in grace. Spiritual laziness hinders growth in grace. Jesus affirmed this in John 17, 17, when He prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God sanctifies by the truth of His Word. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, Long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. How do you grow in your salvation? You long for, and you feed upon the milk of God's Word. That's the means of grace. We just read Ephesians 5.5, 5, didn't we? Paul said, Christ gave Himself for the church to sanctify her. How? having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. The Word is the sink at which we wash and by which we are cleansed and made holy. <clears throat> Romans 12, 2, to add another, says, be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. The renewing of the mind is what brings about the transformation of the life. It starts with the mind. So we must saturate our minds in the truth. Are you doing that? Are you consistently reading the Scripture, communing with God, beholding His glory in His Word? May we be a people of the book. May it be as Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said we should be so immersed in the Bible that if someone cuts me, my blood is Bibline, and if I speak, my language is Bible. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be true for me. So immersed in the Word of God that I can't help but to make progress and joy in the faith. So we have to labor in the Word because our sanctification depends on it. And not only your own sanctification, but even the sanctification of others. If you want other people to experience growth under your ministry, if you want to have an effective ministry, you've got to saturate your mind in the truth and tell others about the truth. We have to seek for their edification. Practically speaking, how can you do that? Let me give you a quick tip. One of the ways I seek to labor for the growth of other believers is discipleship groups. Discipleship groups. It's a group of three to five people that meet together weekly or bi-weekly for six months to a year and study the Word of God together in community, in relationship. And the curriculum I use for this, the tool I use, is called Fundamentals of the Faith by John MacArthur. Very good, very good book. And if you meet for six months to a year and work through it, I let other guys take turns leading after several weeks. And then after six months to a year, we branch off and start our own group. And so if you start with four men or women in discipleship in a year, each of you go and make your own group, then you end up with 16. And then after a year, the 16 go, and then oh, you do the math. I'm not very good with math. But it doesn't take very long before you create a multiplication culture of discipleship within your church and within your own life. So I highly recommend that to you. But either way it goes, we must labor for the growth of others. That's our purpose. Our purpose, we don't just come to church to sit in the pew and say, I want to you know, hear a sermon, get what I can get and go home, right? It's not just about what you can get, it's about what you can give. 
about serving others, seeking to encourage others and build them up in the faith. We have, by the way, a five-step process for discipleship here, kind of unofficially, that I've been working on. Five steps. Worship. We want everyone to be here on the Lord's Day worshiping the Lord with us. Step two is learn. If you've come on a few Lord's Day services, I'd encourage you to contact me. I would be glad to do a membership class with you and teach you about the Gospel and the intricacies of our church and church membership. Step three would be multiply, or sorry, join, become a member. We have a process by which you can do that, and if you'd like to get started on that process, I'd be glad to help you. Step four then is multiply. That's where the discipleship groups come in. And then step five, serve. Serve. Discover your gifts, the ministries that God has given to you, and seek to serve the local community and the church for the glory of God. That's our process. And my hope and desire is that every one of us would go through that process, either here or at another local church, as we seek to labor for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So where are you at on that road to discipleship? If you're not a believer, that's where it begins. You need to come to Christ. Come to salvation. Repent and believe the Gospel. Surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Get baptized. Join the local church. Use your gifts to serve other believers. Seek to engage in discipling relationships and labor that we might all be growing, maturing disciples that make disciples. That's the goal. To be disciples that make disciples. Disciples, and all of it centers on the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Well, that's the third priority of an effective minister. That's the third priority. Titus, the believers of Crete, and all believers today need to know their mission. We need to know why we exist in the world. And here Paul tells us that mission. Very simple, twofold. Evangelization, edification, salvation, sanctification. We preach the gospel in hopes that non-believers become Christians, and then we speak the word of God to believers in hopes that they grow in their faith and become like Christ. So as you go out in the world, don't forget your mission. There's many things you could live for. But most of them, if we're honest, are just a waste of our time and our life, aren't they? Live for this. Be sold out for this. And then your life will count for eternity. Let us do all things for the sake of the Gospel and the glory of Christ. Well, that's all the time for now. More next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the mission that You've given to us. It's a very, very simple mission. There's a lot of good things we could do as a church. We obviously want to serve people who are needy. Lord, we want to stand up for injustices. We want to fellowship together. We want to sing Your praises. There's many things that we want to do. But we know that these two things in particular serve as the supreme mission of the church. Lord, that we would emulate Paul, that we would imitate our Lord Himself, and that we would go into the world with the Gospel, preaching it to every creature, knowing that You will, through our faithfulness, save Your elect, and that we would labor together in the local church for the maturity of the saints and the sanctification of Your people. Lord, help us to do that. We thank You for all the truth we've heard this morning. Now as we sing and as we take the supper together and as we fellowship around a meal, bless the rest of our time for the glory of Your name we pray. Amen.